Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. another edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. In Los Angeles, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And fresh out of the booth in Nashville, Tennessee, it's the coach, Corey Burton. What's up, gentlemen? Uh, excited for another uh, another great show. Uh, championship weekend was uh, was awesome. Uh, the, the selection show was much anticipated, and uh, well, I'm sure we'll get into it here in a little bit. Uh, we're going to see how good we were in the preseason in predicting who we thought were going to be our uh, O-Poi, our D-Poi, and our Koi. And, uh, you don't know, and if you don't know what those are, we'll tell you later. All right. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't introduce the third amigo in the second city, a man who has a strong appreciation for the ballet. It's our intrepid blogger from the Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook. Yeah, I saw the, uh, the Nutcracker this weekend. Good way to kick off the Christmas season and then – to add to the experience, I got snowed in, and uh, we couldn't do a show yesterday because I was stuck in transit. That's okay. Uh, that gives us a little bit more perspective to look back upon the action from this weekend. So, uh, like we mentioned, it was championship weekend, so we're going to talk about each individual title game, at least in the Power 5 conferences in a couple minutes. But we're going to start, obviously, with the big news, and that's the committee's choice for the college football playoff. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that the four choices that the committee made were Alabama at number one, Clemson at number two, Ohio State at controversial number three and Washington at number four. And, you know, some people think the committee got it right. Some people think the committee got it wrong. Josh, you're in that wrong camp. I am. I am. And, um, you know, it, it just comes down to, do you want the regular season to matter? Because if you do, then you have to matter that the conference champions played. That is, I mean, you, why do you play? You play to win the game. Why do you win games so you can win a conference? That's what it is in every other sport. And I think it just what, – what irritates me most of all is the lack of transparency. So two years ago it was TCU gets left out because they weren't definitive champions. They ha- and Baylor was left out because they had a soft – non-conference schedule. Well, Washington a soft non-conference schedule and was left out this year. So they're just changing their minds week to week, it seems like, and that's not very beneficial because ADs are trying to create schedules, coaches are trying to create schedules, and uh, there was a quote, if you give me one second, I'll bring it up, the... Um, the CFB executive director, Bill Hancock, said, quote, football seasons are like snowflakes. They're all different. Next year we'll be standing here talking about some other way it fell out. And that is inherently what is wrong. In baseball, 
we know what matters. In hockey, we know what matters. And in college hockey, they have the pairwise rankings, which is this great computer program that takes all this data and no one has ever complained. The NCAA basketball, they get it pretty right most of the time. And the only time there's a little quibble is like the 70th team because the tournament's so big. But you can't say that seasons are like snowflakes. Coaches are trying to figure out the schedules. ADs are. It's not fair. It's always going to lead to controversy. And as I said the previous show, when you have ESPN running the whole shebang and they are worried about their television ratings, they're always going to take the big school. They're always going to find a way to get Ohio State in there over a TCU or over a scandal program like Penn State, which still hasn't recovered its national reputation yet. So, of course, Penn State got left out. If it had been flipped and Penn State had been 11-1 and with a head-to-head win over with uh, a head-to-head loss to Ohio State, Ohio State's a 10-2 champion, you can bet your butt that the Buckeyes would still be in the tournament. That's wrong. Yeah, Coach, how do you feel the committee did on this one? Well, I mean, ultimately, uh, the way things shook out, the criteria uh, that were met or not met or whatever the arguments may be, I mean, I, I think if you look at it, you know, they did get the best four teams in. But, again, Ohio State did not complete the requirements. And I, and I think this needs to lead us to criteria, almost like a checklist. Did they beat this? And, you know, if you go 11-1, don't play in your conference championship, it almost benefits you more. And you're almost relieved more that you didn't win the conference because it gives you that chance to, to lose the game. And, uh, I mean, it's it just it, – the whole system is, is flawed. The whole system's screwed. I, I, think, I think there needs to be another wholesale change, honestly. Um, kind of try to model it after the NFL. Maybe get your five. Maybe get your power five plus a wild card and have a sixteen playoff. Um, or get your. Or actually get two wild card teams and have your five power five champions automatic berths, and then have your two wild cards play in and then work itself out like that. And you know something like that might be beneficial. I, I don't. I don't know what true answer there is. Any way you look at it, there's always probably going to be controversy unless you just unless you just award your conference champions and your two highest rated wild cards or three highest rated wild cards if you go to 18 bracket and just just let it ride. Um, you know, the more and more we look at it, I guess the more and more we're looking at an 18 bracket. And if you win your conference, you're in. If you're and then the rest of it is the highest rated. Um, you know who. Who's highest in the rankings? That was a non-conference champion, and uh, you go from there. I guess that's the only solution. But I do like the matchups. I think Clemson Ohio State is going to be an even matchup. I think it's going to be a really good matchup. I think it's going to be good to watch, honestly. And they're worried about ratings. Well, they're going to get the they're going to get good ratings on that game. Uh, I think Washington is a team that you know Chris Peterson is, is the type of coach that can. They could go in there and scheme against Bama because Bama has holes, and we'll talk about that when we get to the SEC. But, you know, I, I think the matchups are good. So it's going to be an exciting tournament to watch, uh, controversy or no controversy. But I do think uh, there is something to be said that Penn State won the toughest conference in college football and got left out. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the eight-team tournament is completely inevitable at this point. Five conference champions, two at largest, two at large, and uh, the best group of five team. I think that's sort of where we have to go at this point. That would that would settle things out nicely this year. That would have meant that we would have had um, the four teams we have in, plus Penn State, the Big Ten champ, the highest-rated um Wild card next would have been Michigan. We'd get Oklahoma as the uh, Big 12 champ and Western Michigan as the group of five champ, and I think that would make a nice little tournament. I think, though, as far as this year is concerned, none of it really matters. Alabama is going to blow out whoever they play in their next two games, and it's, you know, it's all going to be a moot point after a while. So, I mean, does anyone, does anyone really think Alabama is going to lose? No, not really, but no. I mean, Josh, do you think Alabama's going to lose? I think Alabama will kill Ohio State or Clemson. Both are severely flawed. I think Washington is their biggest test. I know people don't like Washington's strength of schedule, but they played some really good teams in the Pac-12, so their out-of-conference wasn't hot, but their in-conference was still tough. But um, what I think makes Washington a little different than Clemson and Ohio State is they're just more reliable. Their, their offense with Browning is always reliable, unlike JT Barrett had games where he couldn't pass a lick. And Washington's defense is always reliable, unlike Clemson's, which was very, very erratic. I still think Alabama will beat Washington, but to me, that's their toughest test in this tournament. I completely concur with that. I think that the Clemson-Ohio State game is going to be a very good game, but whoever comes out of that is going to lose to Alabama. And if Washington somehow miraculously beats Alabama, I think Washington is then going to be the national. Actually, Washington probably have too much of a hangover at that point to become national champ. But we will get to those and the rest of the bowl games a little bit down the line here. In the, over the next coming weeks, we will have, uh, be able to discuss everything coming up as well as the FCS playoffs. There were a couple really good games and one massive blowout this past weekend. But we will be getting to that on our second show of the week. But what we want to do now is uh, put a, a little bit of a bow on at least – you know, the regular season and the title games for at least the Power Five conferences today. We'll be taking a look at the group of five a little bit later this week when we do our uh, FCS quarterfinal preview. But um, we're going to start today uh, alphabetically through the uh, Power Five conferences. So that means we're going to start with the ACC. And we all know uh, how the ACC title game went. Clemson looked very, very good in their win over Virginia Tech. Uh, Virginia Tech put up a fight, especially there in the first half. Clemson pulled away in the second half. Um, but, uh, Coach, I know you at least you, you were watching some of this game because uh, your your beautiful bride is a Clemson alum. So uh, what did you think of the Tigers in this one? Well, I mean, I, I thought they did exactly what I thought they were going to do. Uh, you know, Deshaun Watson just shows how seasoned he is as a quarterback, just how comfortable he is in the system. And he's only been in it for, I guess, for uh, – for two years now, because Chad Morse has been gone for, for two years, and uh, for actually just a year. I don't know exactly how much time, but um, it just shows that how just how well of an oil machine that they are. It just shows you kind of how uh, not ready Virginia Tech was for the big time. Um, I thought Clemson had their way with them. Um, 
for the most part. And even though it kind of got close, because Clemson's defense is very uh, erratic and inconsistent, um, I think the offense just kind of held control of the game. And um, there was maybe probably about a minute of game clock where I thought Virginia Tech had a chance. But otherwise, I didn't think they were well enough to stop them on, on defense. And I thought, you know, Virginia Tech was going to get to a shootout. And, and, and if you get to a shootout with Clemson, Clemson's equipped to, to win those type of games. So uh, they were playing right into Clemson's hand. Clemson's usually better at defense than, than they were, but there's a couple things that happened, a couple big plays that happened that got uh, Virginia Tech some, some, some confidence. But, yeah, I mean, you talk about Mike Williams. My God, that guy's a freaking human highlight reel uh, as far as uh, far receivers go. I mean, he, he's a guy that's going to, and, and thanks to Randy Moss, and thanks to Randy Moss working at ESPN, this has actually become a verb. Um, but he, uh, if there's any receiver in college football that can moss somebody, it is definitely him. And uh, he was mossing people all night long. And, and that guy's just a special type of receiver. All David Scott is a threat in the run game with the Jets sweep as, all, all, as, as well as the uh, as well as the return game on special teams. And then when you have Deshaun Watson, you know, commanding all of it, they're a dangerous team. But again, they have holes on defense, and you kind of worry about that in the playoff run that they're getting ready to go to. But um, and you worry about that in their matchup with Ohio State. But I mean, overall, I was impressed with them. Uh, and I think, you know, when they got everything going in the right direction and they're 100% focused, they're a good team. Uh, Josh, you have any thoughts here on the ACC title game, or do you want to just hop right into your uh, players of the year at the conference? Uh, well, I think Coach hit it perfectly right there. And um, i too ashamed to admit this, but because I was at the theater last Saturday – I, time was at a premium, so I recorded the Badgers and watched that game in its entirety after the show. Uh, so the ACC game I, I caught glimpses of when when uh, Fox cut in to show what was updating, but I did not watch it in its entirety. So uh, it would be foolish of me to try and pretend like I didn't see it. Well, and that's why we have three of us here because we, we can't watch all the games, so we try to split them up between us, and we know we had the we knew we had the coach on that one. So exactly. Uh, yeah, so uh, so so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some superlatives here from the ACC. Uh, coming into the year as a group, uh, we had uh, Deshaun Watson as the uh, conference uh, offensive player of the year, and I think that it's pretty unanimous that Lamar Jackson was not only the conference player of the year but should be our Heisman winner. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. He kind of fell. He kind of fell apart down the stretch, but he did fall apart down the stretch. But I still think that. Um, well, I think the team around him fell down the stretch more. I mean, even that Houston game where they they couldn't block for him, I think he still ended up with well over two hundred passing yards. Yeah, the Kentucky game really bothers me a lot. But we called it though. All three of us called that. We, yeah. knew, we knew that that, that was going to happen. They were destined for a letdown, especially knowing that their you know their their title hopes had been dashed at that point. So, but um, you know, on aggregate this year, uh, we predicted that uh, our division champs would be Florida State and Miami, and we were off. Uh, uh, the only the only one of us to pick, uh, actually, none of us picked Clemson as our. Atlantic champ, we all picked Florida State. And then uh, Josh was really in on the Pitt bandwagon. 
Uh, Coach and I were on Miami, but turned out that uh, Virginia Tech and their first year uh, Justin Fuente, uh, first year coach Justin Fuente, was uh, uh, you know won uh, you know barely, but they won by a game over UNC in the Coastal. Pitt was one of the most up and down teams this year, but um, who do you guys uh, who have you guys got for your defensive player of the year in the in the ACC, Josh? Uh, well, I have a little bit of a surprise, maybe, and that is uh, Jesse Bates, the defensive back there at Wake Forest. Uh, Wake was reliant on its defense. They had no margin of error, and uh, Bates came up huge for them. He had 93 tackles, 65 of them solo, two-and-a-half tackles for loss, five interceptions, 158 return yards on those five picks, two to the house, defended four more passes, and forced a fumble. And uh, you know what's scary, boys? He's a freshman. Whew. He's got some wow. big, big uh, days still in front of him. I had Clemson linebacker Ben Bulware. Every time I turned on a Clemson game this year, uh, he was everywhere on the field. And he, to me, was the most impactful player on a down-to-down basis uh, that I watched in that conference. He had over 100 tackles on the year, nine for a loss, including four sacks, a pick, three forced fumbles, uh, some passes defended, recovered a fumble. He was everywhere. He was sort of the heart and soul of that defense this year, at least in my mind. I don't know how you feel, Coach. Yeah, I, I, I agree as well. I mean, it was, uh, you know, there, there's some good options, and, and the big kid from, from Wake Forest is certainly – Certainly a great option, and, and you can't downplay all that. Um, but when you look at a true leader and you look at somebody that doesn't meet the uh, stats category as well, and just kind of the guy that is your extra defensive coordinator on the field, and, and you got to look at Ben Bulware. And uh, he had that one highlight tackle. He actually got a penalty on it, which I think was a little bit a little bit bogus on there. I guess they felt like they had to throw one where he completely suplexed the guy, suplexed the guy and just kind of, it was against Syracuse and uh, tackle on the sideline there, and he suplexed him and got a penalty for it. But you know, I kind of just set the tone for the rest of the season defensively uh, for, uh, for Clemson. And I think that, you know, I, they were breaking in a lot of new starters. And for them to play as well as they did was a surprise in and of its own. Um, it just shows you what kind of coach Brent Venables is, and it shows you what kind of uh, leader you have in Ben Bolware. Had they not had – uh, both of those guys, this Clemson team may not have won the division. It may not have been uh, in the playoff race. And I think that uh, defensively they kind of held it together, even though at times they looked bad. Um, and at times you're going to look bad when you have that many new starters. But, you know, for the most part, I thought they played really well. And, and he kind of just kept it going and kept it going and got Clemson into the playoff by just supplying the offense with just enough stops to keep him rolling. Yeah, you know, that Clemson team was, you know, they had their tough moments this year. A couple really close calls. They probably should have lost to North Carolina State earlier. They did lose to Pitt at home. They had a couple other close calls. But I have no problem with them being in the playoff. And I think that, you know, they are to be commended for a, you know, a very tough season, beating, um, the, winning the two most important games. That's Florida State and Louisville for them. So, you know, I, I have no problem with them in the playoff. Um, but, Josh, who do you have as uh, – I believe actually for the coach, you have uh, Virginia Tech first-year coach Justin Fuente. 
I do. Um, to me, it was kind of between him and Dabo. And the way Clemson just uh, limped through a couple games and, and were just a little erratic at times. It, it seemed like um, the message just wasn't quite getting through some weeks. And Clemson was surviving on their talent rather than their coaching, whereas I feel like Virginia Tech, they weren't a very pretty team a year ago with Beamer. Who would have guessed that they would have made the ACC title game? I think that says a lot about what Fuente and that staff did this season, so that's why I wanted to give them the nod. Uh, Coach, who is your uh, coach of the year in the ACC? Well, I'll tell you how much of a roller coaster this conference was as far as this category goes. Because at, uh, at one point I was like, well, my prediction of Mark Rick being uh, coach of the year is about to come true because he's about to win the ACC. Uh, then that kind of went by the wayside. So I was like, well, Larry Fedora, I think he's going to be it because he has he's pro- his team probably has the best chance of, of challenging Clemson. He got his team into the playoff. He, he probably would have been a candidate for coach of the year. That didn't happen. Um, I, I think then you look at which team came out of nowhere to go bowling. That's, that's Dave Clawson and Wake Forest. I'm like, well, you know, is there any other coach that can, can kind of compete with that notion of uh, this team was pretty bad a year ago um, and they came out of nowhere and did something good. And it, and it landed me on, it, it landed me on Justin Fuente in Virginia Tech. I think he made the most improvement for a program from last year to this year. Virginia Tech was barely in a bowl game. It probably didn't deserve to be. They probably lucked into the, their six wins last year. And, you know, I think they won that last one just on the sheer fact that they were trying to honor uh, Frank, uh, yeah, Frank Beamer and, and uh, I about called him Shane Beamer, but no, they were trying to honor Frank Beamer and, and trying to send him out on top. And then, and they did, but they were really um, on the surface. They were just completed of talent, didn't recruit well at all. And Fuente comes in, turns the culture around, they win the dang, they win the daggum division. So I'm going to go with Fuente for my coach of the year. Because anytime you can take a team that was um, as wildly inconsistent as Virginia Tech was last year and as just talent depleted as they were last year, um, to take them to a division crown is a, is a huge accomplishment. That's not to take anything away from Dave Clawson. I just think that he kind of got one up in that situation. Yeah, I, I had Clawson, and I'm <sighs> – I, I did this before this weekend, so um, I don't know. I still feel like Clawson getting Wake Forest to a bowl game is pretty astounding. A pretty astounding accomplishment. Yeah, and and to me, you know, Fuente, it's it's one A and one B for me. Fuente did an amazing job in his first season. I personally did not think that Virginia Tech was going to be any great shakes. I had them finishing fifth in the Coastal behind Duke, so. Uh, you know, I would have considered if they went bowling. I would have considered important. Yeah, and so you know, I uh, so you know, I, I'm going to go with Clawson just because I want to reward a Wake Forest team that really played above their heads, especially for the first three quarters of the season. But like you said, Coach, it was a roller coaster this year. After a month, I would have bet my life that it was going to be Bobby Petrino. I mean, when that Louisville team was really rolling at first, you know, I thought it was going to be by Retrano in a runaway. Uh, you know, then for a while it looked like it might be Larry Fedora. Uh, you know, I I picked, uh, you know, I picked Mark Rick as well with you, Coach. But um, it ended up being, you know, it, it's a bit of a topsy-turvy season. But, uh, I mean, you could even you could even go as far down and, and make an argument for Narduzzi for turning the boat around and having two of the most impressive wins in that league, Penn State and Clemson. 
you could even say same thing about Doran for the way the team came on in the second half. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I've really got no qualms with with any of these choices. You know, uh, I mean, in the ACC, uh, we've got. Uh, I just wanted to add one. Up. I just wanted to add one. Oh, sorry, Josh. They have 11 teams going bowling this year. Yeah, I, I just want to add one thing about the ACC Offensive Player of the Year. Even though Lamar Jackson was our winner, I think nine times out of ten, the year that Deshaun Watson had would win that, and he would win the Heisman. This is just the one out of ten where someone set insane records. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think that, I mean, there's a case – Still to be made that Deshaun Watson should be in New York for the Heisman. But let's move on to the Big 12 from here. And, you know, it, Bedlam was the de facto title game for this league. And, Josh, you had a phenomenal text to us uh, this weekend concerning this game. And you said that the Oklahoma versus Oklahoma State is like the Globetrotters versus the Generals. The Generals just never going to have a chance. And it seems like every year Oklahoma State just – can't get over the hump against Oklahoma. Oklahoma ends up winning, uh, you know, pretty much going away 38 to 20. Uh, they had a really great game on the ground from Samaje P. Ryan and from uh, Joe Mixon, both for the Sooners, who were just, you know, pretty dominant, ran for 341 yards. Uh, pass for 288 and three scores from Baker Mayfield, who had another very clean game, zero picks against, well, 13 of 19. So, but um, Josh, you know, uh, how did you feel about uh, Bedlam this year? What sort of, what was it about Oklahoma that made them so dominant in this one? Well, Oklahoma has better athletes. Let's just start there. I mean, Okie State, they've changed the profile. There's their program uh, from, Back, you know, when they had Jimmy Johnson and, and even Barry Sanders. Um, and I know Les Miles did some good things there, but, but Gundy's just put in a new stratosphere. And yet Oklahoma still, for the most part, points to a player and gets them. Their real recruiting battle is with Texas. So, so Oklahoma's always going to have a little bit better players. And so the thing that I noticed when they uh, went over to the Oklahoma State uh, blogs and stuff to kind of get a feeling on what their fans were saying. They were complaining, and I, and I agree with it, that for whatever reason in this game, Mike Gundy loses his swagger, and he begins to coach not to lose. And he stops taking some of his chances, and you sort of see Okie State do that. Um, I think Mason Rudolph also – it's a little tight in this game because there's so much pressure. We saw him airmailing some balls. And I know it was an 18-point game, but these teams feel like they're closer than that 18-point margin. It's just a little bit edge and talent, a little bit more relaxed coaching, and a little bit more relaxed play. But Baker Mayfield resulted in the Sooners getting the win. Yeah, you know, before Coach, you jump in here, I just want to say Oklahoma – only had 52 offensive plays in this game, which is a very, very small amount. You have to give a lot of kudos to the Sooners' defense, which, as we know, has not been great this entire year. They were really good. They were flying around the field, um, especially um, – I want to get this pronunciation right – Ogbania Okoronkwo, 
um, I believe is as close as I'm going to get to on this pronunciation. He's a linebacker on the Sooners. He was absolutely everywhere. He had nine tackles, two sacks, two passes for a loss, another quarterback hurry. He was, you know, making, giving fits to Mason Rudolph, who had his, had a, picked a bad time to have his worst game of the year. 11 for 25, 186 yards, no touchdowns. So, uh, coach, you got anything to add here on Bedlam? Or we don't have the coach actually at the moment. So, Josh, you and I, I guess, we'll just keep going uh, talking um, about some uh, superlatives here in the conference. And you and I both had the same offensive player of the year, and that is Oklahoma wide receiver Dede Westbrook. I know a lot of people have think Baker Mayfield is you know the guy on that team, but you know if you watch this Oklahoma team for any amount of time, you know that as you know Dede Westbrook goes, so goes Baker Mayfield. Yeah, and I mean. Baker Mayfield has a lot of strengths, but if I were to list the most accurate passers in college football, I'm not sure he springs to mind. Uh, He's a very athletic kid. He's got a huge arm, but um, you just don't think of him as like Aaron Rodgers and fit fit into those teeny tiny windows. Mm -hmm. It seems like with Westbrook, he just has to put it in the zip code. And Westbrook will find a way to come down with it. He had uh, multiple 200-yard games. Uh, had 100-yard games, um, you know, between 100 and 200 yards. So this is a, this isn't even me fudging the numbers. I mean, like, oh, he was over 100, you know, eight times, blah blah blah. And I'm and I'm counting the 200 games twice, excluding those 200 games. He had 158 against TCU, 184 against Kansas State, uh, 105 against Kansas. Didn't have to play that much. They killed the Jayhawks. 131 against the Cyclones, 100 against West Virginia on just two catches, one one for a touchdown, and 111 against Oklahoma State. So in six of their 12 games, he had 100 yards. In two of them, he had 200 yards. And against Baylor, where he didn't need to play that much because they cleaned their clock, he had 88 and four catches for two touchdowns. His impact was insane. I... You rarely see a wideout with this impressive a season. It was big enough for me that I'm giving him one of my Heisman votes. Uh, for me, the most impressive thing is that he caught, you know, he got 74 balls, still averaged 20 yards a catch. It's insane. Which, you know, guys catching that many balls are typically 15 or, uh, you know, 14, 13 yards per catch. He's averaging 19.8. He had 16 scores on the year. I, I, I didn't think that there was, you know, much of – a, a competition here for player for offensive player of the year in the conference. I guess the, my second place vote went to uh, Deontay Foreman, the running back from Texas, who had a terrible. The Texas had a terrible season, but he was outstanding, over two thousand yards on the ground. Yeah, I mean he's a compelling pick. Obviously, if you're going to pick a wide receiver, the natural argument would turn into the kid throwing the balls to the wide receiver. Um, but I'm with you. I mean, D.D. Westbrook wasn't even. A no-brainer for me. Yeah. Um, okay, well, uh, Defensive Player of the Year. Um, I said no one deserves a, bo- a vote in this conference for a defensive player <laughs> because no one plays defense in this conference. So I'm going to cede the floor to you. Yeah, um, there are only two teams that I saw that played consistent defense uh, throughout the season. Maybe they had one or two games that got away from them. But um, really, West Virginia and Kansas State were the only two teams 
that I thought had a consistent effort on defense. So I looked at them. I narrowed it down to two players. I love the season Rasul Douglas had uh, for the Mountaineers. He had uh, 62 tackles, 45 of them solo. But the defensive back, Matt, how about this for some stats? Eight interceptions, one touchdown, seven passes defended, and one forced fumble. Uh, I mean, that's just incredible. That's what you love to get from a secondary player. Uh, but as much as I enjoyed that season, I actually went with a jet, with a Wildcat from Kansas State, Elijah Lee, the linebacker. He had 98 tackles, 67 of them were solo, two picks, uh, three passes defended, one fumble recovery, and one forced fumble to go along with five and a half tackles for loss and one and a half sacks. Um, he was he was phenomenal um, and just. I love giving defensive awards to linebackers because I think they do so much. And there's a reason why they're called the quarterback of the defense. And there's a reason why so many Heisman Trophy winners are quarterbacks. And there's a reason why so many defensive players of the year come from the linebacker core. And Elijah Wood was all over the field. Or Elijah Lee, excuse me. And you had Stoops for Coach of the Year as well. I did. The way they recovered after those two early losses, they were one and two early in the season. Uh, for a Final Four team a year ago to be out of the national title race that early, they could have thrown in the season and not really cared, but he kept that focus and they won the Big 12. Yeah, I had Dana Holgerson coming into the season. I thought West Virginia was going to finish middle of the pack, and they finished, you know, uh, tied for second, but lost the tiebreakers. They lost at Oklahoma State. But what impressed me most about Holgerson is that he showed a a, a new emphasis here on two things on a balanced offense, their rushing attack got going like it had not uh, since, you know, the days of Rich Rod there, um, you know, they were really, really balanced on offense. And like you mentioned, Josh, they started playing defense. This is the first, this is the first time since at least they moved to the big 12 that West Virginia played defense. And I thought that was a direct ref- reflection on a, a change of mindset from uh, Holgerson and the rest of that staff. So I really wanted to congratulate him on that because I was, uh, thoroughly, thoroughly impressed by uh, the growth that this team has shown from year to year. Yes, they didn't win the conference, but I think they are in very good hands going forward. All right, guys, I'm back. I'm sorry. I don't know what the heck happened there. Well, it's okay, Coach. Uh, you want to give us your, uh, your, 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 your superlatives from the Big 12? Yes. Uh, well, uh, my, my Bedlam game matchup was just, you know, my thoughts on that was just total domination. Oklahoma showed that they're still the class of, of this conference, no matter how bad it is. Uh, they're the class of this conference. Even though they're out of conference, they took a few lumps and uh, butt kickings. But uh, nonetheless, Offensive Player of the Year has got to be the human highlight reel, D.D. Westbrook from Oklahoma. I mean, the guy was uh, – the guy. Uh, if Oklahoma makes a highlight reel, it's probably just going to be all of D.D. Westbrook's plays, uh, to be honest with you. So I think – We, might, we might let Samaje P. Ryan have one or two in there. He might have a play in there, but for the most part, it's D.D. Westbrook. Um, defensive player of the year, I'm going to go with the Big 12 sack leader. Um, and I, his name is escaping me for whatever reason, but um, I think it's Justin Willis uh, from Kansas State. Am I, I had it pulled up, and I lost it for some reason. I don't know where it went. But uh, he's my defensive player of the year. Uh, he led the conference in 11 and a half sacks. Jordan Willis. Uh, Jordan Willis. There you go. I knew it was something like that. I knew it was something Willis from Kansas State. Um, 
And then uh, my coach of the year, um, again, I, I kind of treated this like the, AC, like the ACC. There was there were several coaches I had that uh, could get it. I think Mike Gundy for having Oklahoma State in the position that he had them in. Uh, Bob Stoops, uh, again, for uh, getting over some adversity to win this conference. Uh, you know, you take two butt kickings early in the year, and uh, when your team's confidence is an all-time low, he gets them playing on another level, so you got to consider him for the nod. And also Dana Holgerson at West Virginia. They were kind of the come-out-of-nowhere uh, bunch here in this conference. And then David Beatty uh, for single-handedly uh, starting the process, starting the actual process of firing Charlie Strong. It was rumored and, and possible, but he made it happen. Uh, so I guess you got to give him a nod for that. But uh, and I think the regents and boosters of the, of the Longhorn program might give him a little gift because we all know that they hated Strong from the beginning. Exactly, and uh, but I, I think I'm gonna give the nod to Bob Stoops here because of what he did in the face of getting getting stomped by Houston to open the season, and two weeks later. Uh, getting a similar stomping at the hands of uh, Ohio State. So um, I, I'm thinking uh, Bob Stoops there. All right. Well, let's move on to the Big Ten. The Big Ten title game was, you know, as a Badger alum, a really tough one to stomach. Going up 28-7 to in the second quarter, scoring, you know, a defensive touchdown, having two big fourth down stops, running game going really strong team hasn't given up more than 23 points in the entire year feel pretty good about yourself but once Penn State scored uh that their second touchdown to make it 28 14 right before halftime I turned to my fiance and I said that I have a bad feeling about this and I was right and the Badger team came out so flat in the second half and they got you know they just got beat by bigger more talented receivers uh, Josh, I know you had some thoughts on that one. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's pretty simple. If you give up 21 un, unanswered points, the, about the only time you can really do that and feel good about yourself is if you're up 50 points. I mean, that, that's a lot. It just took the wind out of their sails. Their offense really wasn't ever the same during that run. The defense certainly wasn't the same after that run. Uh, you mentioned the halftime adjustments. This is something that Penn State has done a really good job of this season. But uh, the Big Ten title game lets both bands play a little bit of a show with all the TV stuff. It's a lot longer halftime. And, um, you know, Franklin, just as a head coach, has been in more bowl games than uh, Paul Christ. Chris might not be as used to having those extended halftimes. Maybe he doesn't quite know how to handle it. I think this was a learning experience for him. And the, at the end of the day, the, the thing that, that all Badger fans would agree with, and you too, Matt, between the schedule and how young this team was, our expectations for 10 wins and an appearance in the title game were pretty low. This has already been a dream season. If you, if you had told me at the beginning of the season that we would finish the conference, West Division champs, lose the conference title game, and go to a New Year's Six Bowl, I would have been over the moon. And yet most of the Badgers fans I talked to seem a little disappointed. And I understand. Like, we feel like we had that in our hands, had a shot at the playoff. But, you know, I mean, at least Rose Bowl. But, you know. It sucks to come up short at the very last second. But when you don't expect to get to the last second, then you have no reason to complain. 
Well, you know, I, I texted you guys this uh, during the final week of the regular season. And I said, you know, Wisconsin was down to Minnesota at the time. And I said, I would rather beat Minnesota and lose the Big Ten title game than vice versa because they'd already locked up the West. So I feel partially responsible for the Badger loss. <laughs> um, but, no, still. Shame on you, Perko. Yes. So still, I, I do feel like, you know, this has to be considered an almost unqualified success for uh, this Wisconsin program. But let's get to some superlatives. Um, you know, I, I think we all have, just sticking with Wisconsin for a second, Coach of the Year is Paul Christ, Wisconsin head coach. Yeah, he, it would, you know, him and Jebs Franklin are 1A, 1B, but Franklin did not have as many injuries or a retirement by a key player before the season even started. For Chris to navigate, that was incredible. Yeah, for him, Chris to lose an All-American offensive lineman the week before the season started and still play, you know, and, and, and have a team that still ran the ball pretty well, especially towards the end of the year. Uh, you know, for a team, and for such a tough schedule, for a team that was expected to go 7-5, and five, to go 10-2 and two in the regular season is, is pretty outstanding. Coach, would you have? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Uh, I think Paul Chris has got to be uh, your coach of the year, giving the, given the expectations. I mean, James Franklin kind of had the same expectations, but I think Paul Chris had, had more hurdles to, to get over and had more adversity to overcome than James Franklin did. Uh, James Franklin got his signature win against Ohio State and kind of got this program not only going in the right direction, but soaring in the right direction. But I think Paul Chris still overcoming everything that he's had to overcome to get to the Big 12, to get to the Big 10 title game. Um, it, it's kind of, it, you know, it kind of makes it easy there. All right. Well, let's move to Offensive Player of the Year, where, uh, Josh, you and I both have Nittany Lions, but we have two different ones. I have tailback Saquon Barkley, who was, you know, just a really solid presence for them all year. He had uh, 1,300 yards and 16 touchdowns on the ground to go with 350 yards and 303 touchdowns receiving and, um, you know, he just was a rock for them all year, average over five yards a carry, and was, you know, every time they needed him, I felt like he was there. But you had his uh, mate in the backfield, Trace McSorley. I did. Uh, the reason I did that is Penn State's season really turned, and they became a title contender and then obvious Big Ten champion when they really let McSorley let it rip. And in the Big Ten, he's better than JT Barrett at throwing the ball. He is mobile. He had 352 rushing yards, six touchdowns. I just love everything he did. And I think the reason Barkley managed to even put up the yards he did is teams weren't able to put eight men in the box anymore. That's what Penn State – or that's what Michigan did to Penn State. It killed them. Uh – the you know, Franklin and his staff made the adjustment and let let us sorely McSorley let it go, and it changed the complete complexion of this team's offense. Yeah, Coach, uh, how about you? Who'd you have for Big Ten OPOY? Well, um, I, I I was debating between Saquon Barkley, uh, Corey Clement, and Trace McSorley, and I'm going to settle on Trace McSorley and. And a lot of it's just because he kind of made things happen for Barkley. He, he gave everybody on that offense an opportunity to do, to do the things that they do because he was such a dangerous weapon. And one of the compliments people give uh, quarterbacks is, is they say, uh, that, that guy can spin it. He can spin it. He can spin it. Well, he was certainly spinning it 
uh, down, down the home stretch of the season when they knew that the chips were stacked high, it seemed like he played even better each and every week. And granted, two of those games were Rutgers and Michigan State, and uh, he did exactly what he was supposed to do against those two teams. He racked up video game numbers um, and blow wins in those two games. And, and all the, everything offensively for Penn State ran through McSorley, operated through McSorley. Defensively, they kind of fed off that as well. They played opportunistic. They said, hey, if we get a stop here, we get it back to Trace, and this offense, they'll, they'll take it down and they'll score. All right, let's, all right. They, they score. All right, kick off. All right, defense, let's go get it back. Let's, let's, get, the hands of, let's get the ball in the hands of McSorley. All right, they, they, they whip some tail, get a few sacks, uh, get the ball back. They go down and score again, and they just keep doing that, and, and, and that's because they have so much confidence in Trace McSorley that he kind of just leads that offense down the field. And a lot, of, a lot of what he does can't be tracked in the stat book, and it, it has a direct result on what is tracked in the stat book, and I think the two correlate. Once they, once they got over that Ohio State game, once they got past that Ohio State game, it was like the light bulb came on for McSorley. I mean, not, that, not saying that he wasn't good before that, but he really blew up after that and, and really just turned it on. And uh, I was really impressed with, with, with him, um, and I think, he's, I think he's the offensive player of the year. All right. Um, well, we're going to move to Defensive Player of the Year now. And, Josh, before you go on your rant, because I know you're going to rant, um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give my justification for Ohio State safety Malik Hooker. He was the best player on that Ohio State defense this year, and he, you know, always had the biggest plays on defense for the team, no bigger than the pick six against Michigan that really got them going for the season. Remember, he's only a true sophomore, uh, 67 tackles, uh, six picks, inter- including three of those as pick sixes, uh, four more passes defended, uh, five tackles for a loss, and he just seemed to be uh, the heart and soul of that defense. Coming into the year, associate Raekwon McMillan, but by the end of the year, everyone was looking to Malik Hooker to really set the tone for them, and and he did, and he was – the most impressive defender for me in the conference. But, Josh, I know that there is quite the case to be made for Josie Jewell, but you are angry, angry at the Big Ten coaches and media. Well, there's stupid. So, Gabriel Peppers won the Let Kiss Fitzgerald Linebacker of the Year Award. First of all, he did not take as many snaps as linebacker as anyone else because they moved him around to safety and all that. So that's dumb. Second of all, that's the conference award. The Butkiss Award, the national one, has five finalists. Only one is from the Big Ten, and that is Josie Jewell. That tells you who the, the nation thinks is the best linebacker in the league. All Big Ten linebackers were Raekwon McMillan at Ohio State. He had 87 tackles, 37 solo five passes defended, two forced fumbles. Uh, all those stats, less than Josie Jewell. Uh, he had five sacks and one – or five tackles for loss, one sack. He had half a sack more than Josie Jewell. That's ridiculous. Ray McMillan should not have been first team all Big Ten. Next linebacker from the first team all Big Ten was T.J. Watt. I love Watt. He's incredible. Wisconsin runs the 3-4. He's the edge linebacker who rushed the passer all the time. Did not have as many tackles, nowhere near as many tackles as Jersey Jewel. Fantastic player. 
He should be on a first-team All-Big Ten list if they did it as a 3-4, but they don't. They do it as a 4-3. I'm sorry, Watt, you can't be a linebacker in that scenario. And then Jabril Peppers had hardly as many sacks as Josie. He had a nice tackle for loss when they would blitz him, but, like, he just did not have as many tackles and only had one interception and one pass defended. So now I'll give you Josie Jules. Led the conference with 114 tackles, by far the most. 50 of them were solo. Five tackles for loss, half a sack. You're not going to pick this year, but he has mitts on eight passes defended and forced a fumble. He was the heart and soul of the team. Coach brought up the leadership qualities when we did our uh, ACC Player of the Year, talking about Ben Bowler. That's exactly what Josie Jewell did. He should have been a first-team All-Big Ten. He should have won the Linebacker of the Year award. And this love affair with Ohio State and Michigan is stupid when the stats don't come anywhere close. The media and the coaches embarrass themselves this year. Uh, Coach, how are you going to follow that up? I'm not. I'm going to say sold, I think. Um, <laughs> you provide a pretty compelling argument there. Um, and you use one of my arguments to fuel your argument. So I, I commend you, sir, and I will say agreed. Um, I was going to say – I was going to go with the unoriginal answer of Malik Hooker just because uh, of what he did for the Ohio State defense and, and kind of where he was. Um, he was always around the ball. He was – you know, he was just all over the place. He led the led the conference in interceptions. That's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good stat there, um, if you will. Um, and that's a pretty good thing to lead the conference in. Um, but you know what? I was gonna say all of that, but sold. I got it. I uh, like it. Well done. We're, we're we're down here at the Grundy County auction, and uh, Coach just bought himself a, a lot of Josie Jewel. And, you know, I don't, Josie was my runner-up, and it was pretty close. I ended up picking Hooker just because I thought, you know, his propensity for the big play just put it over a little bit for me. But I have zero qualms with Josie Jewell. And, and Hooker was my runner-up, and they play different positions. That's the nice thing. And they could both be first-team All-Big Ten on my list because they play different positions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's um, move quickly to the – we did Coach of the Year. We've done Offensive Defense and Player of the Year. So we're yes. going to move now to the SEC. Um, we're going to do the Pac-12 last because, Coach, we want to get you in here on some SEC before you got to jump out. But yes. obviously, to the surprise of absolutely zero people in the country, Alabama cleaned Florida's clock this past weekend. It wasn't even close. Um, you know, Alabama is still the dominant force in the Southeastern Conference as well as the country. Uh, Coach, you got anything that you, uh, you know, you want to tie bow on the, on the conference season? Well, um, I think Minko Fitzpatrick just scored again. Um, I, I, I tell you what, if Florida had any semblance of a quarterback, I think this game would have been a lot closer. Um, I, I think – in a playoff sense, I, I think there's I, – I found a few holes, and, and there really hasn't been a team that's been good enough yet to really expose that. Uh, teams, There's a lot of teams that aren't deep enough to hang in a ball game long enough with Alabama but to expose some of these, some of these holes that they have. Um, Jalen Hurts has been playing more like a freshman lately, um, but teams haven't been able to take advantage of that because Alabama's defense um, – they have a few minor flaws here and there, but they do a good job of taking advantage of your flaws as well. And 
there's just really not a whole lot you can do about it. But a team like Ohio State, a team like Washington could maybe maybe get in there and, and expose it. But I still don't think either of those teams are, are deep enough. I don't think Clemson's deep enough. I don't think anybody's deep enough to really truly expose them and, and, and just kind of extend it out over four quarters. So, I mean, just total domination. That's been the story of this conference. It's been Alabama and then everybody else. And then how the bowls shake out, it's, it's really just a roll of the dice. Um, on how the bowls shake out. It doesn't really have any rhyme or reason to it. Auburn goes to the Sugar Bowl. Uh, they just kind of happen to be the, the last man standing uh, as the highest-ranked SEC team to, to uh, you know, outside of the playoffs. So, um, you know, just total domination. Alabama, Minka Fitzpatrick has got to be got to be in there too. And, and had there not been another individual um, in this conference defensively, I think Minka Fitzpatrick would have been my unanimous selection for uh, for defensive player of the year, but there's another gentleman that we're go- going to give some love to there. So uh, I, all that being said, um, I think because Jalen Hurts got himself into the Heisman talks, I think that he was the offensive player of the year for the Tide. I mean, he, he is a true freshman quarterback, and I'll pull up his stats here in just a second um, as, I, as I shuffle through everything here. Um, he was he was fifth in quarterback rating, but he completed 65% of his passes, scored 22 touchdowns um, through the air. Um, however, uh, he was also able to do a lot, and he was a big weapon on the ground as well. So he was a true dual-threat quarterback. Um, I think that that's got to be easily your offensive player of the year uh, just for the impact that he had on this offense. An offense that was, that was looking like it was going to be quarterbackless, uh, and, and trying to find an answer there. They found an answer really quick, and he, he seemed to be the guy. So um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's pretty unanimous, right, Matt, that Jalen Hurts is our offensive player of the year here? Yeah, he, he's unanimous. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I just wanted to contribute on Jalen Hurts that he was also second on the team in rushing with 841. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, they're – uh, behind Damian Harris, and we all thought going into the year it's going to be Bo Scarborough, so who was you know really the the catalyst for that team. But turns out uh, it was it was a freshman, a three star freshman that no one had you know knew that much about, and he came in and he was you know he might be the best quarterback talent that Nick Saban has had. Absolutely, and and, and he's been somebody that can do it both ways and could do it on the ground and through the air and, and have the wherewithal to lead as if he were a true junior or true senior. Yeah. Well, I think that our, um, our defensive player of the year, I think is also going to be unanimous. And at least I know it is for myself and Josh, and that is uh, Vanderbilt linebacker Zach Cunningham, who if I was a Heisman voter would definitely get one of my top five votes. He was simply, simply the best defensive player in the country this year. 119 total tackles, 16 and a half for a loss, three passes defended, two forced fumbles, four fumble recoveries. And if you watch Vanderbilt, he is their entire defense. This is a team that made a bowl this year, which is amazing enough in itself. But they, they beat Georgia and Tennessee this year, and it was because of their defense, and their defense is – 
is Zach Cunningham. There is, for me, little doubt that he is the best defensive player in the SEC. Uh, Coach, who would you have for your defensive player of the year? Well, I mean, it's pretty easy, Zach Cunningham. I mean, you know, just what he did, uh, 119 tackles. I mean, it's not like he was the uh, emotional, just the emotional leader and, and, and was like fifth in the list of, of uh, most of his stat categories. And, okay, we're going to give him the nod because Vanderbilt made a bowl game. No, he's legitimately the best defense player in the, in, the, in the conference. He would start on all 14 teams, and he would never come out of the ball game. He would still have the same statistics at Alabama uh, that he did at Vanderbilt and he would still have the same kind of impact. And that tells me that kid's a stud. And, and you watch him play, and you just kind of watch. He, he plays a lot faster than he is. I don't know what his 40 time is, but I could probably guess that um, if I had to guess, it's probably a 4-5. I, I would say that he's, that he's oh, a 4-5 I, 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 I think it's probably closer to a 4-6-5, 4-7, but he plays faster. He plays like that's he what, a 4 That's what I'm saying. He plays – he probably legitimately runs a 4-7, but he plays to a 4-5 because of his instincts and his ability to run uh, side to side, his ability to just kind of read things out and, and play downhill as well. He plays like a four five kid, but he probably legitimately runs a four six five, four seven. And I mean, and when he gets there, he will strike you too. I mean he, he is he is the complete inside linebacker that you are that, that NFL teams are gonna be drooling over. I think he's gonna do really well in the league. Um, and and there's no reason why he can't be Defensive player of the year. He should be. He should be on all the award lists. Um, probably isn't, but should be. For sure. You know, he, he's a true junior, and I don't know what his, you know, what his deal is if he's going to turn pro or not. But you got to think this is a guy who's going to be top two or three rounds uh, drafted for the NFL just because of his, you know, versatility and toughness and all the intangibles that he brings. He is a guy that every coach would dream to have on their defense. Smart, tough, like Josh, I know he's your guy too. Yeah, I picked him as well. I also have him uh, on my Heisman ballot. And uh, sometimes just one more superlative to keep on him. Sometimes you get a player who will, like, compile a lot of stats. Like against the FCS foe, they'll have – you know, 250 rushing yards or they'll have 18 tackles or something insane. It just kind of skews their numbers. Uh, But what was already a no-brainer got even more impressive for me when I kind of refreshed my memory and looked at his split. So that critical, critical Georgia game where he made the huge play at the end in the 17-16 game, and I'm sorry to bring this back up again, Coach, but he had 19 tackles in that game, in their huge Tennessee game, he had 10 tackles, nine of them solo. Um, So in their two biggest wins, he was an absolute wrecking ball. um, And just, just so, so impressive that is, is game splits. Just like I said, it was kind of a no brainer to begin with, but it, it it just got even more and more impressive. I still have nightmares watching him. I still have nightmares watching him make all 19 of those tackles, especially the fourth and one on Isaiah McKenzie. But um, we won't get into that. I, I guess if it had to be somebody that made that last play, I guess it just had to be him. Um, and it was very fitting that he was the guy that made that play. Yeah. Well, uh, 
Uh, who do you have for coach of the year, coach? Well, uh, I mean, I guess the easy choice would be Nick Saban because uh, of the absolute total utter domination that he that he's uh, wreaking on the conference. But that's nothing new to anybody. Well, um, so okay, okay, I'm going to make a devil's advocate case for Nick Saban really quickly then because he's my choice. Uh, okay. Nick, Nick Saban, uh, even though they've won uh, you know, uh, national titles in 2011, 12, and 15, has not been even SEC coach of the year since 2009. And, okay. you know, I don't think that, you know, th- I mean, this, this is a guy who year in and year out has the best program in college football. I don't think that's there's, – there's zero stretch saying that. But this team was – this is his best team. I think that it's also safe to say that this, this Alabama team is, without a doubt, the best team that they have had between the offense being – putting up, you know, points in – bunches the defense being the best defense in the country their margin of victory in every game is astounding they are as complete a team as we have seen in college football in quite a while can i make a devil's advocate to your devil's advocate uh would that be the devil's rejects yes um by the new name of our show (laughs) (laughs) by dominating the recruiting he is playing with a stacked deck to begin with and he's recruiting is part of being a good coach but that is true he's got a but you've said it before coach that a lot of recruited duties are the coordinators and a lot of teams but um but i mean he just kind of plugs in plays and at this point in his career as amazing as he is He's kind of a CEO. He's relinquished a lot of control on that offense. I don't know if you can really give him credit for the offense. Okay, so, so Josh, you have then Mark Stoops as your coach of the year, correct? I, I do have Mark Stoops. This is a team that I thought was going to be awful. I thought he was going to get fired. They went four and four in the in the SEC, nearly won that uh, conference, and much like. Um, a previous coach that I gave this award to uh, earlier, I can't remember which conference now, I'm spacing out, but he uh, he had a turnaround this year. They started 0-2. It looked awful. He went 7-3 and down the stretch. Much like Bob Stoops. Yep. That's his brother. I don't know why I didn't remember it. But uh, knocked off South Carolina, a bowl team. Knocked off the Vanderbilt, who we just waxed poetically about. They're a bowl team. Uh, knocked off... Uh, Louisville, a really good team that we liked. And they beat Mississippi State, who I know made a bowl game at 5-7. and seven. But with that Fitzgerald kid, Mississippi State's not a bad team. That's four really nice wins they had. Um, so I was thoroughly impressed with what he did. Uh, Coach, so who did get your vote for Coach of the Year? Well, uh, i tell you who did. And I, I guess we're going to have to make a new category, um, CEO of the Year, uh, <laughs> so that Nick Saban can get some hardware. So um, it's obvious that I'm not going with Nick Saban here for, for my choice, even though it could be obvious that he, you know, he's a guy and he kind of leads the charge, but he's delegated a lot. Recruiting is a lot on the assistants, and the head coach just kind of comes in as the closer. All right, that being said, there was a guy in this conference that was dead in the water when he rolled into Sanford Stadium. He didn't beat Georgia. His season was going to fold. 
he was probably going to win two games all year, get fired, and they were going to be looking for a new guy in Nashville. Beats Georgia, turns his program around. They start becoming extremely competitive. Now, they didn't set the world on fire, but you consider where they were, where they have been. Uh, they've probably been the only program that's been consistently worse than Kentucky. And that man is Derek Mason. I think he has got to be the coach of the year for what he's done. And, and, and I'll say I hate it for Nick Saban, even though I don't really mean that. I hate it for him because every, every year he seems to kind of say, okay, this is my year. I'm finally going to get that piece of hardware. Somebody like Derek Mason or Mark Stoops comes rolling in and has a magical season. You know, the, the, the amount of enthusiasm that's built in this Vanderbilt program and in the, in the city of Nashville, this used to be a really orange town. Still kind of is, but you see a lot of black and gold now. And I don't know if they're just coming out of the woodworks because they just beat Tennessee. Uh, we'll see kind of how the enthusiasm is in February and March and just kind of see where that is then and see if all the black and gold goes away. Um, but I, for, something tells me that it's not. And, and it's got to be Derek Mason for what he's done. He's, changed, he's changing the culture. He's been very patient. I think he's done a good job of not listening to outside influences and just kind of keep plugging away, keep plugging away, keep plugging away. And as much as we hammered Andy Ludwig, I think he did. I think he got better each week. I think Kyle Schirmer got better each week. They leaned heavily on Ralph Webb, which they should have done. He's, a, he's one of the conference's top backs, even though he's not the top back, but he's one of them and he's in the conversation. Um, I think Zach Cunningham had a lot to do with it. Um, he had Vanderbilt's defense ranked in the top 20 this year. I mean, I, I just think there's a lot of good things pointing in Derek Mason's um, direction. Now, I, I think, um, you know, your honorable mentions, Mark Stoops, he was my runner-up for the job that he did. He led the East at one point, even though he didn't win it. For Kentucky, as, as bad as we picked them, I think, I think we picked them either dead last or second to last in the, in the East. At one point, he was leading the East. Um, late in the season, November, he was leading the East at one point in November. And so he was my runner-up. But I, I think Derek Mason, for where Vanderbilt was compared to where Kentucky was, I think uh, Derek Mason climbed the highest, uh, covered the most distance as far as the direction he took the program in. Um, and then my third runner-up, I guess, was uh, a combination between Nick Saban and Will Muschamp. I was going to say, I was gonna say Muschamp uh, would have made my ballot. Yeah, he, he, he would have made – he was on there. Uh, they go bowling. They were, again, a team that was completely depleted of talent. Um, he's recruited well on the offensive side of the ball. Jake Bentley um, still got miles to go, but he's supposed to be a high school senior right now, so you got to give him a little bit of, uh, of, of leeway there. And then, of course, uh, you know, and we talked about Mississippi State. They were a team that – their team that's getting better each and every week. I think they found their guy, Nick Fitzgerald. Well, Dan Mullins went – Dan Mullins was press conference of the year after the Egg Bowl with that cigar. Yeah. And I'll tell you who's, who's the, uh, the coaching LVP, and that's Hugh Freeze. Um, I think he's the, he's the LVP of the coaching ranks because um, he probably had the highest expectation and finished the worst. So, guys, before I, before I jump out of here, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you my superlatives for the Pac-12, and I'll let you guys run roughshod over it. I mean, Washington – I mean, there's not a whole lot you can say about that. They just completely dominated uh, a Colorado team. It just seemed like they just overwhelmed them, which they tend to do. Buda Baker was a tremendous uh, key piece on that uh, Husky defense. Jake Browning, again, doing his thing. And 
And what, what, what Washington does a tremendous job of doing is scoring points in bunches. And that's what they did at Colorado. They overwhelm you. They score in bunches, put a lot of pressure on you, and that's when the defense thrives the most. You get a couple quick touchdowns in a row, a turnover here puts a lot of pressure on the opposing offenses, and that's where the Huskies feast. And uh, I'll make one other observation about the conference before I get into my uh, uh, superlatives here. USC, I don't think there's a team out there that wants to touch them right now. I, I kind of believe that the way they're playing right now and the way uh, Adoree Jackson is playing right now, they might be the hottest team in the country. And I, I kind of feel bad for Penn State because they're walk. I feel like they're about to walk into a buzzsaw. So, well, I have a question I, about that. I know we're not previewing bowls, and I know you got a run coach, but I was wondering, does the uh, does the hotness of USC uh, last through this long a bowl break? Because I feel like the anger of being left out of the tournament is something that sustains. We saw TCU obliterate uh, Ole Miss. I, I think it will because they'll carry that chip on their shoulder all throughout practices. They'll right. probably they'll probably play that all throughout there. I, I think it will. Yeah, we, we saw Stanford have the chip on their shoulder last year. And and they squeaked by Iowa. I'll tell you it was a nail-biter. Yeah, nail-biter. Yeah. They're nail-biter within 50 points. So, Jake Browning, <laughs> Buda Baker are your players of the year. I, I think that goes without saying. Um, Adoree Jackson, if you had a third player of the year, just kind of an all-around player of the year, I think Adoree Jackson gets some consideration there as well. And coach of the year has got to be Mike McIntyre for just the amount of ground he covered as far as they were a middle-of-the-road conference team that was improving but we thought they might have a chance of upsetting a few people and competing and just being tough on people we didn't think in a million years they would have an outside shot of they they win one game and they're in the playoff type situation but mike mcintyre's done a tremendous job getting him to that point he's my coach of the year so guys without further ado i'll give you an early oh yeah <laughs> thanks and we'll, we'll talk to you soon yeah all right bud yeah all right, Josh. Well, uh, you and I both have Jake Browning as our Offensive Player of the Year, and that's, you know, really – there wasn't much of – there wasn't too much thought put into that because I, I don't really know who else you would even put in there. You know, Well, I mean, Luke Falk. Ga- I was going to say Gaskin, his running back, had some great numbers. And and Ross, uh, his wide receiver, you could make the same argument as D.D. Westbrook. But I'm going to do the, the opposite with uh, – when we were talking about Oklahoma, I said that Baker Mayfield, tremendous arm and athletic kid, but we don't really think of him as having, like, that NFL accuracy. Browning's the opposite. With Browning, I feel like if you could have him do the Dr. Pepper challenge for me to get some free tuition, uh, he would clean up. Like he, He's just so accurate, and that was one of the things that really, really impressed me. And then the 42 touchdowns is absolutely bonkers. Uh, not only 42 touchdowns, but only seven picks, six to one yeah. ratio. And I, last, year, last year as a freshman, he had 16 touchdowns and 10 picks. This year, he increased his touchdowns by 26 and decreased his interceptions by seven. Yeah, 176.5 rating. Which, you know, as, as far as rating goes, that is pretty, pretty, pretty good. Um, oh, yeah. So, uh, I, but you and I have different defensive players of the year. Uh, I'm with Coach. I've got Buda Baker, the you know, all-conference safety from Washington. He was, you know, definitely their leader on defense. But you have a guy from our not only uh, – yeah, you have, you have a guy from Colorado, I believe. 
I do, and I love Buda Baker. Buda Baker was my runner-up. I love everything he brings to the game. He's a, a true shutdown uh, defensive back that still put up impressive stats despite some teams just ignoring and not even going to his side of the field. Uh, but I went with Colorado linebacker uh, Kenneth Olugbode. Um, I hate when I butcher people's names. That's very offensive. But Is it Olugbode? Uh, it's O-L-U-G-B-O-D-E. Olugbode. Olugbode. Okay, got it. All right. Uh, I'll just call him Ken, and I'll let his numbers do the talking. Um, so Colorado had the number one defense in the Pac-12 this year, and he led the team with 105 tackles. He had 69 of them solo. His teammate that finished second in total tackles had 66, which means he had more solo tackles than a teammate had total tackles. He had six and a half for loss, two and a half sacks, two picks, uh, two pass defended, forced a fumble and recovered three more. He was all over the field. And as much as I love Buda Baker, just his numbers were just mind-boggling. And, and what blew me away was seeing more solo tackles than a teammate had total tackles. So a teammate, the number two guy on his team. Exactly. Yeah. So um, it was kind of it was kind of a flip a coin situation, but but I went with my man Ken. Yeah, I've got I've I've got no no qualms with that, and obviously. Probably the biggest no-brainer of any award this entire year is Pac-12 Coach of the Year. Yeah, Mike Rackatire, they, they had 10 wins this year. Um, they had uh, – they went, what, 7-1 and one in the regular season – or 8-1 and one in the regular season conference play. They had five wins in the Pac-12 coming into this season, so he almost single-handedly doubled their conference win total. Um, just an incredible, incredible job by him and his staff. I think, uh, you know, I love to love to plug his name, but I think Jim Levitt will get some look at, looks for the uh, Royals award as top assistant. Uh, I, he certainly should. We all had Colorado coming in second to last in the Pac-12 yeah. this year, just ahead of it. Yeah. And we were right about Arizona State. Well, sort of. Um, <laughs> but we were wrong about Colorado. Um, yeah, I mean, well, we thought that division was stacked is the thing. We thought UCLA would, would be incredible. We said all of those teams were going to make bowl games outside of our dead last pick. Yeah, so, we, we thought five of those six teams were going to make bowls. And, you know, uh, four teams made bowls from that division somehow. Um, because with UCLA and Arizona having, you know, some of the worst injury luck any team has in the entire country, especially UCLA, my goodness. Um, you know, they, they had so much attrition on that team this year that they really didn't have a chance. They had zero depth. But my goodness, what a year from Colorado. They, they cannot be given enough praise for everything that they did on this season. They are – go ahead, I'm going to give them a pinch more credit and praise, and this will transition us to our national awards. I think, we, I, I, think we're, I think we're going to wait for the coach to come back for our national awards. Oh, we're going to wait well, for the coach after we do after we do some group of five awards. We'll get to some national. Ooh, uh, we'll get to some all right, just so we can all get the coach right. in on it. Um, even though I suspect that uh, it's going to be pretty unanimous <clears throat> all around. 
Yeah. Um, well, do you want my Heisman ballot while we're here? Yes, I, I, would love your, I would love your Heisman ballot. I'll give you mine as well. All right. Well, I went old school and took five people because I liked it back in the day when they invited four or five people to New York City. Even if you didn't win, you still got a free trip to New York City. I think that's pretty exciting for a college kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have – I love just the historic season Lamar Jackson had. And I don't care that – the team suffered some losses. He was still really good in those defeats. Um, so I got Lamar Jackson winning it without question. Uh, and then my two through five was was a little tricky. I, I I knew who I wanted, but not exactly what order. But I but I settled on Deshaun Watson, and I kind of settled the argument on something I said myself earlier in the show which was just nine out of ten seasons, he wins the Heisman with what he did. So that's why I put him second. Uh, loved, loved the years that Cunningham had. I put him third. Uh, Jake Browning, the incredibly impressive season, um, gave him fourth. And then D.D. Westbrook, um, it's really tough for wide receiver to win. Uh, the, the only time we've had a wide receiver win, he did a whole bunch of returns and was a big special teams player rushed the ball a little bit. And D.D. Westbrook, I know, got a couple touches as the runner this year, but um, he was pretty much exclusively a receiver, and that makes it hard to uh, to give him much higher than fifth just because it is a skill position for a reason. It's kind of a specific skill set, but he definitely deserves to be there in my opinion. Yeah, my uh, my number one is also Lamar Jackson. I think it's pretty self-evident. My number two is Jake Browning. Um, I thought that just the growth he had from last year to this, we talked about those 42 touchdowns. He also had four more on the ground, 46 total touchdowns for a team that was, you know, you know, pretty dominant. In- Does it concern you at all? Because I saw this stat, and I thought this was interesting. In their games against uh, Utah and uh, USC, and uh, try to remember one other game, um, but it gets their three toughest teams. He only went 38 of 80. Does that concern you at all? Mm, a little bit, but, you know, you're going to be yeah. able to pick stuff apart with, with, with everyone. Uh, fair so, enough. I, it's neck and neck for, for between him and Watson. Yeah. Um, for me, I have uh, G.D. Westbrook, number four, and, mm-hmm. and Zach Cunningham, number five. So, yeah. Same um, players, different order. Yeah. Here, hold on just a second. Yeah, so I've got, uh, just to run through mine, uh, once again, to wrap it up, I've got Lamar Jackson, number one, Jake Browning, number two, Deshaun Watson, number three, uh, D.D. Westbrook, number four, Zach Cunningham, number five. So um, I I think that two and three are kind of interchangeable, and four and five are kind of interchangeable. And I understand an argument for a couple other players, maybe if you really like Donald Pumphrey, he had a, a pretty outstanding year. I think that, you know, people are going to make a case for Baker Mayfield. He had the best uh, quarterback uh, passer rating in the country. But I still think that that's a bit more of a product of D.D. Westbrook than it is of Baker Mayfield. Plus, you know, they've got two – he's got really two outstanding backs that they have to gear up for – defense have to gear up against in the run game. So, I, I think – And when you're looking at Mayfield's numbers, came up really short in their two losses – and racked up a ton of those numbers against a awful defensive conference. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think you definitely have to take that into consideration. So, um, 
kind of kind of strange, kind of interesting though that the um, you know the best conference in the country, the Big Ten, not not a single guy on, our, on either of our ballots from from that conference. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really have uh, an, a historic um, offensive performer this year. Our best quarterback, McSorley, came on uh, midway through the season. Uh, our best running backs had kind of some up-and-down seasons um, with Corey Clement and Saquon Barkley had, had flashes of brilliance, but also uh, games that just left you wanting some more. Same thing with Jason uh, Barrett. Exactly. So you know, uh, that happens. And Peppers, you know, a lot of hype around Peppers, but, you know, neither of us think that he really deserves any of the accolades that he's getting, especially for some of these, you know, he was defensive player of the year. In conference, he was terrible. Not terrible, but he wasn't good. It, here's the thing about Peppers when you compare him to, uh, you know, a fellow Michigan player that won a Heisman as a defensive player in, in Woodson. Um, Woodson excelled, just absolutely excelled at one defensive position and then got some highlight reel material in the return game. And occasionally a couple snaps on offense. What they did with Peppers was just dilute him. I'm, he, he's an unbelievable talent, but can you definitively say that he excels at one singular position? I, I, I can't. And, I mean, his position is kind of rover. Yeah. And which is fine, but especially in the way that you know all conference teams and things like that are organized, there's no position for rover. You're a linebacker, you know, inside or outside, or you're a safety, or you're a corner. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that if he is just a safety and he had played true safety this year, maybe he's got a little bit more chance of it. But also, it's also strange that – so he's technically listed as a linebacker, so he has to be judged as a linebacker for all these awards. And how often do you see linebackers returning punts and kicks? So that's, that's just like a little thing that always, uh, that always interests me. But it, it's like um, back in the day at uh, New Mexico State when Brian Erlacher was – or sorry, New Mexico, when Brian Erlacher was their kick returner. Yeah, um, I think that the conferences really need to reconsider doing four-three lineup. Um, that makes it really hard for guys that are nose tackles. Mm-hmm. It, it makes it hard to figure out what to do with a guy like Watt, who's yep. um, a linebacker. Four and more schools running three-fours. Yeah, I think they should almost. They should just almost take. It doesn't have to be a real football lineup. They should take uh, four linebackers, four down linemen, and five defensive backs. The so thirteen guys. Yeah, yeah. Not because I, I, I'd even be happy having seven front seven guys and four defensive backs. Like not really putting yeah. not not putting like a position on any of them and just saying okay these are the best line these are the best front seven guys then TJ Watt is definitely yeah. one of the seven best front seven players yeah. but I don't know if he's one of the three best linebackers or you know if you consider him a defensive end well he doesn't like do yeah. defensive end things in the run game so you know well, what I was thinking with my idea of the picking eight people up front is that covers everything and then the five. Uh, defensive backs is your fifth defensive back, you'll just call it a rover. And that way, a guy like Troy Palomalo, a guy like 
Jabril uh, Peppers this year. That a guy like Sua Cravens right now at USC. Exactly. Yeah, where they just play um, kind of this new. I don't know if new age is right because I'm sure there's been plenty of linebackers who come up and support the run game, but um, they're getting more attention now, yeah. and it's harder to figure out where to put them in your traditional defensive conference season accolades. Definitely. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up, uh, wrap it up for us here today on the legal motion. So uh, on behalf of the uh, departed, not, you know, actually departed from this earth, just departed from this episode, coach Corey Burton and our intrepid blogger from big 10 and counting Josh cook. This is the professor Matt Perkins saying so long and see you next time on the illegal motion college football podcast. Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.